0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org.
1: Most of us Christians in the 21st century have a strong sense, even if not a theoretical account, that the New Testament is at once the legislator of our imaginations in ways that unbelievers miss, and an utterly alien text, emerging from a strange world and insisting on a life that even its strange denizens would find alien and when a new translation of the New Testament does genuinely new things on that journey from Greek to English. On our way through the oddities, we come to hear what should have been in our minds and hearts from the moment we first heard the name Jesus, whether paired with Christ or Messiah or anointed. If there's one writer bold enough to take on such a new translation, David Bentley Hart is that writer, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to speak with him today about his New Testament translation which you can find titled appropriately enough, the new Testament. David, thank you for coming on Christian <laughs> humanist profiles.
0: Uh, well, thanks for having me. Let uh, me
1: put my barbarity on the table to lead off. I learned my Greek at a relatively conservative Protestant seminary where they taught me what they called Erasmian pronunciation. Now, yeah. when you say Greek words, your pronunciation is going to be closer to Demotic pr- pronunciation. For the sake of our listeners who have not studied Greek, What's the difference there, and why am I wrong?
0: Well, a Demotic, or the people's Greek, that is the, the, the Greek that, that is spoken today and has uh, been for many centuries, uh, is is probably closer, far closer to the pronunciation of Greek in the 1st century, 2nd. We know, at least by the 4th century, uh, that we can find misspellings by, by persons without a great deal of education that confirm uh, that the demotic is is fairly a, uh, accurate. And I think this has been known for some time. Erasmian is, is a convention that was invented in the 16th century in the West by persons who had never heard any Greek spoken, uh, modern, medieval, or ancient, and has absolutely no grounding in history or philology. It's just... Uh, traditional to educate people with this pronunciation. And then as one grows older, one's too lazy to correct. <laughs> Bad <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, it, it's, my claim is not that uh, the modern Greek pronunciation corresponds in every particular to how it would have been spoken, say, in Cappadocia in the second century. Uh, but there's little doubt that it was far, far closer. It is far closer than Erasmian, which resembles no form of Greek that anyone ever actually spoke.
1: All right. Well, listeners, you'll have to take my word that whenever I pronounce a Greek word in this interview, I'll be cringing, uh, knowing that it sounds wrong. But uh, I'm going to keep doing it anyway, because as you said, I haven't. Made the time to uh, correct my pronunciation.
0: Wait, you understand that, that being orthodox, that if I didn't uh, use a if I didn't use a Demotic pronunciation, I might very well get kicked out of the church. So. I,
1: I, oh, we wouldn't want that. Get, we wouldn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say that I I uh, didn't know just what kind of storm this translation would uh, kick up. Uh, I know that every translation of the Bible kicks up some kind of storm. But I will say that uh, one thing that really excited me when I started digging into here is the stylistic differences across the narrative passages. Uh, this is something that I could make out to some extent with my seminarian's Greek, but I've never really found a, an English translation before this one in which the difference, for instance, between Mark's breathless style and Luke's more measured storytelling comes across this way. Talk about your process of, of arriving at that English stylistic difference and, and the reasons that you think most English translations don't reflect that.
0: Well, I think most English translations don't reflect it simply because uh, most translations are an attempt to make as clear as possible what the translator thinks the content uh, of the text is. It's not really an attempt to render the text into some kind of equivalent in in English. and that's. That's fair enough. It, it depends on what you're after. But to me, it's it's impossible to separate style from content in that way. And I think uh, it also can have the unfortunate uh, uh, effect of imposing meanings uh, that one presumes are there, even though they're not necessarily there. Uh, there are many sentences in Paul that are f- fairly vagabond in their wandering. Um, and the, te- the temptation is to assume that one knows exactly what Paul meant, usually we draw it from whatever tradition we come from, and then break up his long sentences into smaller, discrete phrases, smooth them out, and use equivalents that we think gets the message across.
1: And provide finite verbs in some cases.
0: That's true. And, <laughs> uh, well, now verbs and verb tenses, which we should talk about, I believe mm-hmm. you want, to, uh, are an interesting question, too. But for me, uh, part of the, the power of the New Testament, I discovered when I was translating, it is the diversity of voices. That this is not—that uh, it, it, it doesn't read like a manual of doctrine, but instead it's, it's, it's persons from every sort of background. Obviously, Luke was a person who was extremely educated, fairly cosmopolitan in his Greek, urbane perhaps would be the, the better word, um, mark— <laughs> Uh, from a somewhat different background, uh, obviously. And, and Paul, uh, a person who apparently was always in a hurry. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it to me, it, 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 what's fascinating is that so many diverse personalities, and I think personality is conveyed by style to some degree, so many diverse personalities were seized in so many ways and felt they had so urgently to communicate what they thought they had, they had found. And uh, so uh, to my mind, preserving the style, or at least trying, if not preserving, at least trying to represent it in the translation was, was a matter of some importance for me.
1: Well, good. I, I do want to have you talk a bit about verb tense because this has been something that uh, some of the more critical reviews of this translation have, have dwelt on. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was in my seminary Greek class, my professors always told me and sometimes I obeyed and sometimes not, to render those past tense verbs as a historical present.
0: Uh, You mean the other way around, the historical present as a past tense? That's
1: right, that's right. Okay, see, and I I flipped that around, see? It's been too long since I took Greek. Uh, This translation, I mean, jumps tenses in the middle of a narrative. And honestly, I mean, the conversational style there is what I found so interesting about it that, you know, again, I hadn't seen another translation, so... Talk a little bit—I mean, if you want to respond to particular reviews, that's fine. If not, just talk more generally. What's your rationale for following the census straight out of Greek and into English?
0: Right. Well, I haven't read the review, so I wouldn't know. I'm, I, may, I'm, I'm, I I may. I
1: won't it's not, trouble I, you with them, then.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, to be honest, it, it's nonsense, uh, and it's based on a certain truth, but it's, it's a truth so banal as to be almost a truism. Uh, Back in 1949, uh, Kurt von Fritz, who was a philologist and a classicist, wrote an article on the difference between the historical present in Greek and Latin. And this, this led to a generation of New Testament scholars, and by New Testament scholars I mean people who taught New Testament in seminary, I don't mean classicists who were deeply immersed in the text. Um, to try to use this 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 understanding of the so-called historical present in Greek as evidence that, in fact, the gospel writers were very systematically writing good Greek uh, uh, of the time, and this is simply how tenses were used. And in fact, that and, and this is called Axian's art theory, and it's true of Indo-European languages. The tenses uh, often describe uh, kinds of action rather than locations and time. But it's entirely anachronistic to apply that to first century kini, or koiné texts, as you would say. And it also, it doesn't, it doesn't actually map on the actual documents. It, 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 the truth of the matter is that uh, even von Fritz pointed out that by the time of Xenophon, this practice was already in decay. Uh, by the first century, the tenses were more or less as we use them. They, they were attached to uh, time designations. There were still some ways of using the present, as we, as we in fact do today, that are what are called durative or iterative, continuous uh, uses. Uh, it's just, you know, I will say, I write for a living. And that's the present tense, but you don't assume that what I mean is that at this very moment I am writing. Uh, so, I mean, there's a sort of banal truth to that, but but that's not what's going on in the, in, in the use of the so-called historical present in Matthew and Mark and John. The reason it's not found in Luke, except in one or two cases where it can be uh, made sense of, is because Luke is writing good first century Greek and the other gospel writers aren't. And so I, 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 I've tried to explain this to seminarians before, that, that using a philological understanding of tense that goes back to maybe seven centuries before Christ does not actually clarify what's going on in the uh, New Testament. When, uh, if, a, if an evangelist say they crucify him. Well, that's obviously neither a durative nor an iterative huh. use. That's just a perfect that's been rendered as a present. Right. So, what's actually going on is there are two different, uh, what I would call, you know, let me put on my philologist's hat for a moment. This is actually an important point, so forgive me for dwelling on it for a moment.
1: No, I, I wanted you to, so thank it's, you for doing it, so. It,
0: is I would distinguish between two narrative styles. One, uh, uh, one I'd call frastic, and the other syngrammatic. And the only reason I would use the pretentious terms is that that gets philologists excited. <laughs> uh, but it, remember, the way people composed in the first century was to dictate to an amanuensis. Uh, the materials for writing and the skill for writing were, were rare attainments, and so you had to dictate. Someone like Luke is is. Producing a treatise, he even calls it that, and that's why I call it a syngrammatic style. So he's very careful. He writes a very educated Greek, and so he does not use the historical present. Uh, the way in, in in his gospel, the way uh, Matthew and Mark and John do, uh, a frastic style that is one that's that's more uh, just expressive, demonstrative, is more like somebody telling a story about the past and having it transcribed directly. And this is how we today speak. When we tell a story in the past, we never uh, confine ourselves to a single tense. You know, I went to visit my girlfriend and I knocked on her door and she comes to the door with a hammer in her hand and says, get lost. You know, the shift in tense is perfectly natural for us, too but we hear it but we we do know the difference between the past and the present there's no reason not to render it that way the desire of uh, new testament uh, teachers in seminaries to try to use axioms art uh, analysis to render everything as perfect or aorist in the proper sense is simply an attempt to make the texts look like they're they're somewhat better written than they are. It's it's an anachronism, and it's one really that should be abandoned. I'll also point out that the King James Version is on my side in this. I mean, people forget this, but for the most part, uh, the King James Version also renders the present as present. So uh, there's so many times that Jesus saith this or that rather than said.
1: Oh, true enough. True enough.
0: And uh, so really, it's a modern fad. To, uh, pre- and, and of course, the other thing, one other thing, is even those scholars who recognize that the axioms art explanation doesn't fit the actual text will then resort to something called aspect tense, in which uh, the present tense is used because it describes how the action seems from the aspect of the persons in the story. Well, if that were true, I mean that's that's absolutely meaningless. If that were true, everything should always be written in the present tense. So
1: right and then it, it also doesn't account for the differences as you noted between luke and the other three gospels right uh, yeah the uh the aspect which you just mentioned was the uh cornerstone of one of those critics uh who i actually talked to at, at a conference about this very question and he continued to insist on it so i'm glad now i've I've heard your I, account I, of things. I, I submit
0: then that whoever it was you were talking to was not a classicist, but simply someone who got his Greek in seminary. There's fair nothing. Enough, wrong, fair there's enough. nothing wrong with that. But if you're actually, if you come to the language through classics rather than seminary training, so that you've read the other texts of the time and of the age, uh, I don't think you'd be as prone to to make uh, that assertion.
1: And I've been away from Greek for a good 15 years now. I spend most of my time translating
0: Old oh, English. Unfortunately, Sad. but. <laughs> it's okay. I quite like Old English, too. So. Right.
1: Well, actually, that, that, that leads me to a, a brief follow up, I hope. I mean, uh, what this style of storytelling reminds me of is, is the common epithet in Anglo Saxon verse that indicates a sort of improvised oral style rather than a sit at the desk and compose a poem style. Is, yeah. is that the sort of thing that's going on in three of the four Gospels?
0: Yes, I think very much so. I think I think that, for instance, Mark uh, is doing just what I did when I told the story about well, not my girlfriend. I've actually been married thirty years, so believe <laughs> me, I don't have a girlfriend, or I've had the same girlfriend. Let, for a let long
1: listeners time. take note. Take note.
0: <laughs> we're married. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's all that's happening. And if you if you actually look at the Greek, you'll see that the tense there is no rhyme or reason to how the tenses shift. Every once in a while, it makes it more vivid. Just as the way—and we do that instinctively when we we tell a story in the past. I think when we shift into the present, it's because we're putting a special emphasis on it. But it's not systematic, it's intuitive. And and that's very much the case, too, in in the the texts of three of the Gospels.
1: Very good. Well, this might uh, be so broad a question that you'd have to walk through every passage in the Gospels, and I don't want you to do that, but indulge the question anyway. One thing I noticed as I read through the synoptics especially— is that your translation often keeps in the same paragraph episodes that get visible section breaks, or at the very least paragraph breaks, in other English translations. So generally speaking, did you have a process for deciding where paragraphs began or ended, or was there some precedent or principle that governed those decisions?
0: Sometimes I followed the breaks in the Old Horton Westcott first version of the critical text. Because that was uh, intended to reflect, supposedly, what the rule of I taught them about uh, the the paleography they were working with. So, I mean, even though there aren't regular paragraph breaks in Greek, there are places in the manuscripts where there seems to be a caesura or a break or a shift. Um, You're right. I could have broken it up more. And the reason I didn't break it up as much as I could have was just to try to give – some sense visually of the way ancient manuscripts just keep the, ma- the narrative rolling. But since I was also putting in verse numbers, you know, and, and other things to help people navigate, I felt that occasionally I, I would have to allow for paragraph breaks. It's I, I wish I could claim that there's a s- specific philosophy of what I was doing there, but actually I was just trying to navigate some of the older versions of the critical text before Uh, say, like Nestle Allen, decided that they were just going to put paragraph breaks wherever they thought it prudent.
1: (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. Uh, I mean, one paragraph that especially caught my eye, and again, this is something that I think adds something to the experience of reading the text, is in Matthew 14, in one paragraph, uh, your translation keeps the death of John the Baptist and the feeding of the 5,000 and the crossing of the sea and the healings in Gennesaret, all in one paragraph, and I, I realized as I was reading that I have been trained probably, you know, as much by lectionary breaks as by Nestle Alland to think of those as four very discrete episodes, whereas in this translation, they are all part of one story, and they inform each other in a way that they don't in other translations, so uh, <laughs> listeners, I'll just go ahead and say, I mean, this is a good thing, even if there's not a system to it,
0: well, there, there's not a system to it, but it, it, it you, you, you warm my heart because I, that, that in, in fact, was sort of the way that particular passage seemed to me when I was reading it in the Greek, is that actually there's a continuity here, not a continuity as or a single episode, but a, but a certain flow of intention that somehow I thought I shouldn't break up. So if, if it had that effect on you, you've... Uh, I have to say, it made me a little happier today.
1: Well, good, good.
0: I didn't know if anyone would uh, get that impression from it or not.
1: Oh, I certainly did. I mean, like I said, I I became more and more excited as I read more and more of this translation. I've certainly been recommending it to people. One word that recurs in the Synoptic Gospels, and here I'm I'm cringing as I say this, is the place named Gehenna, uh, which this translation gives as the somewhat Tolkien novel-sounding phrase, Veil of Hinnom, In the postscript of the the story of your thought process, I mean, you tell a great story about how you arrived at that phrase. So let our listeners in on why we have a veil uh, instead of a hell. Okay, well,
0: um, first of all, make sure they know that's V-A-L-E, not V-E-I-L. Ah, yes,
1: yes, yes, thank you.
0: Uh, I I don't think, it doesn't sound Tolkien-esque to me, it sounds Tennysonian, but then again, tolkien Tolkien's prose was uh, was Tennysonian, that's why, right. I, why I find it hard to read. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, uh, 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 the reason I used Vale rather than Valley was just to indicate that it had already become a, a metaphorical um, designation in some sense. Uh, so I could have called it Valley of Hinnom just as well, but I just wanted something to detach it from the sense that he was describing a specific geographical location. So let me explain. Uh, traditional translations of the Bible use the word "hell" quite often. The uh, King James, for instance, uses it for at least uh, three different things. Uh, one is the Gehenna, or uh, which is just a Greek rendering of the Aramaic rendering of Gehenom, uh, Valley of Hinnom, or Ben Hinnom, uh, Valley of the Son of Hinnom, uh, which. Uh, had become, by the time of Christ, something of a, an obscure but rather terrifying eschatological image, maybe drawn in part from Jeremiah, maybe from Isaiah, uh, and in the intertestamental period, uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, state or place of devastation, ruin, punishment, destruction. Uh, but it was not a concrete image of the sort that we get in the later medieval period in which you can just point to it and say well what, what, what does a, a 10th century person mean when he says hell well he means uh, you know a place generally below the earth of eternal torment that, that is run by the devil and his, his, exe- his executive staff and so on it's it's a much more uh, it, it's, a mu- it's it's a somewhat vaguer though no less terrifying sort of prophetic uh, uh, image. That I wanted—I didn't want to use the word hell again because it just summons up a fixed set of images in our minds. Uh, in rabbinic lore, for instance, and th- this is true uh, very, you know, if not at the time contemporary with Jesus, within a generation, uh, there's so many different theories, so many different explanations of what the punishment of the Gehenna is or how long it lasts or what it means. Um Originally, uh, Hinnom Valley, or the Valley of of Hinnom, or the Son of Hinnom, is, I mean, it really is, it's a real place. Uh, And there's so many different theories of why it became uh, one of the favorite metaphors for post uh, or eschatological, or if not even eschatological, future historical judgment. Uh, You know, some of the prophecies that Christ utters, like those of Jeremiah, seem to be about. Uh, intrahistorical calamity, uh, such as the the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. So uh, I, I, on the one hand, wanted to separate the word he actually uses from the fixed uh, simple image that most of us have in mind when we hear the word hell. Then also I wanted to make sure that it didn't get confused with the other words that get called hell in traditional Uh, translations such as Hades the realm Mm -hmm. of the dead which is something very different or uh, the one or in in a verbal form Tartarus is used once and that doesn't refer uh, actually to to anything uh, the human beings need to to worry about it's actually a reference uh, to a subterranean or or, uh, otherworldly prison for a certain set of fallen angels uh, whose histories are described in what was called the Noachide intertestamental literature which most Christians have never read but which were you know very much part of the culture of of Jewish Christianity I mean Jew- Judaism and Christianity in the early centuries i'm I'm sort of wandering all over the place, but the point is that uh, Gehenna Vale of Hinnom we tend too quickly to imagine that we know what he was talking about. And I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that we should be so ready to assume that we know uh, what the phrase what the term entirely indicated for Jesus or his listeners
1: very good I want to ask one more question about one more term in the Gospels and this might be a minor detail but I appreciated it. Tell our listeners why it might not make good translation sense to have Jesus address his mother as woman uh, <laughs>
0: Well the the te- you know woman it's uh, it, it, to many english uh, to many anglophone ears that has always sounded curt rude and dismissive it shouldn't i mean the word woman's a perfectly respectable thing but if you say to someone woman uh, <laughs> it's usually followed by something rather discourteous or uh, imperious uh the word yini or i guess you would say gune see see how uglier Erasmus, see how much. How, I, I will how,
1: grant that. I will
0: grant that. Uh, Yini uh, was was a title of respect among other things. It, it was it was reserved for married women, it, it, as with most ancient cultures. Until you were, till a woman was married, she had a different designation: a virgin, or a maiden, or a girl. Uh so it, 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 the connotation of addressing someone as woman is rather like saying ma'am or madam or, or lady. You know, it, it, it doesn't have anything like the curt, terse, rude sound that simply saying woman uh, would for us. So that, that's, that's why I, I believe I read I, I had him address her as madam.
1: Yes, yeah. So I, am I allowed to tell my southern students that uh, Jesus said yes, ma'am at Cana?
0: Yes.
1: Yes. Very good. I'm going to do so from now on. Well, I want to turn to Acts, and uh, one detail that stood out to me, and to which you dedicate a substantial translation note, is that the Pharisees, by that book's account, believe in resurrection as an angel or a spirit. Uh, Why is that modifying phrase important to how we read the New Testament and, you know, Jewish and Christian literature from that period more generally?
0: Well, I don't know if that's what it means or not. That's you see, it's an obscure phrase. Some people translate it as they didn't believe in the resurrection or in angel in the you know or at, in spirit. Uh, it's an odd way of phrasing it in Greek. Uh, but another way of reading is they didn't believe in a resurrection as angel or spirit. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, uh, my my qualification is I can't say with absolute certainty that that translation reflects Luke's intentions. Um, but it, it it would be odd, uh, even for the Sadducees, which we know of, of, whom we know, you know, very little actually. It's, it's uh, historically they 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 lost out um, mostly because of, with the destruction of the temple, uh, the temple cult passed into history, but uh, you know, the, the, the notion that, that there would have been a large sect of uh, Jewish priests or scribes who didn't believe in angels is almost incredible, given what we know about first century Judaism. Uh, at, the, at the same time, I mean, we might be able to, to learn something from Paul's discussion of resurrection. Uh, I mean, he speaks of a spiritual body as opposed to a psychical or animal or animate body as the body of the resurrection, and maybe that's what spirit there means. Mm-hmm. Generally, quite often, and you'll find this in the Septuagint, the word spirit is used for beings, you know, like angels uh, or demons uh, that don't inhabit psychical, that is, animal bodies. Uh, it's a de- it's a designation of a, a of of a kind of existence that isn't tied to generation and decay, to flesh and blood. But I don't know how important it is, to be honest with you. You've asked me a question I'm not really prepared to answer very intelligently. Uh, I think that we we should remember that when the, when the word resurrection is used in any time in the New Testament, the 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 way this was imagined is more various and perhaps strange than we realize.
1: We'll talk and about there, a few of those variants, because I think this will be interesting <laughs> to our listeners.
0: Uh, well it could loop usage there could could mean that some thought that that our resurrection would be would, would mean literally that we would assume an angelic nature and after all Christ does say that those in the kingdom uh, will live like the angels and remember uh, they, no one at the time would have thought angels were entirely bodiless uh, the, the tendency and this is true of both uh, Greek and uh, Jewish thinking at the time. Uh, generally, it was believed that that everything other than God has some kind of body. It's just not a body necessarily of flesh and blood. It's not a body, not a mortal body uh, tied to generation and decay. So it could mean that many, for many, the idea of resurrection was, uh, you know, entering into the condition of the angels. Or entering into a spiritual reality. It didn't mean the resuscitation of a cadaver. I mean, Paul clearly, and he's a good rabbinical Jew of the time, I imagine, in this regard, a student of Gamaliel, clearly says that it's not flesh and blood and soul that is raised, but a spiritual body, which is very different. It's still a body. I mean, it's not, uh, he doesn't believe, obviously, he does believe in resurrection. I think many modern Christians tend to think of resurrection as you know simply getting up out of the grave again uh with better teeth and uh, you know and and w- without the fear of dying uh for paul it's a, it's a radical transformation it's a transfiguration into a state of of reality that is utterly saturated with the divine glory uh how he imagined this who can say um But he does say, you know, quite clearly, flesh and blood cannot inherit the king. And that's not a metaphor. I mean, you know, as many, many commentators over the years have tried to pretend that flesh just means sinful human nature. But it's not the case. With Paul, the kind of body we inhabit now, composed of flesh and blood and animated by a psyche, a soul, that is a a principle of life. uh, Or in, in Latin, that would be an anima. It's where we get the term animal from. For him, that body perishes with the old age, with the old order, that w- that form of existence for us. The, the hope that he points to in the resurrection is a reality in which everything has been become spirit. And what that means, how he conceived of it, I don't know. Uh, but it, cer- it certainly wasn't the resuscitation of the animal body.
1: Hmm. I want to follow up on that because a lot of Christian theologians that I've read have— leveled the accusation that anyone who makes a strong distinction between the bodily life that we know and whatever it is that comes at the eschaton is somehow sliding into Gnosticism. That's usually the the completely yeah. contentless word of abuse there.
0: Yeah. Um, Gnosticism is a is is a, is a practically worthless term. To I be agree. <laughs> um i think that it can be it can be defended when you speak if you use it as a special designation for a specific school of sethian gnosticism which does correspond to the picture we have but on the whole the words and the ideas that we tend to dismiss as gnostic with the exception of the the obviously Unorthodox idea from Chris, from the Christian view that that the Creator God is not also the Redeemer God, mm-hmm. but everything else that we call Gnostic is just first century uh, Jewish and Christian language, uh, and it was the, it was the standard way of talking about the life of the world to come, or the, our condition in this world. When Paul says when Paul speaks about flesh, he means flesh, he means the mortal body. It is something that he sees as a prison and a curse, and to deny that is, is to my mind, just nonsensical. It's so obvious, especially in First Corinthians 15, and if, if he even has to emphasize the matter by adding blood, flesh, and blood, and to try to turn these into metaphors, uh, and then, of course, uh, so often the word spirit that when Paul uses it is. Transformed by translators into a reference to the Holy Spirit, so that it's no longer a reference to our for our a principle of our existence in God, but becomes simply a statement about the grace of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is no doubt central to Paul. But again, to central to Paul's thought. Fault, fault, but again, it simply falsifies the actual teachings of the New Testament to dismiss anything. That, that seems a little too, uh, how can I put it, grim in its view of the present cosmic condition as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is an easy term of abuse. As a term for, as a as a scholarly term, I think it's utterly vapid. And in many ways, what we call Gnosticism is much, much closer to the satiriological narratives of the first century and of the New Testament than a great deal of later what we would consider more orthodox theological formulae.
1: Fascinating. Well, I want to return to prose style, and I, you know, this is probably the fact that I'm an English professor, so I'm interested in prose style. But something that made me pay attention to the Bible in a way that I hadn't for a good long while was the jump from the measured narrative prose of Acts to the frenetic looping epistle to the (laughs) Romans so, once again, I mean, the stylistic jump is impossible to miss if you read this straight through, so how might readers who don't have Greek benefit from an English translation that actually carries over this stylistic difference?
0: Well, it might help disabuse them first of the notion that the that neat theological formulations about what Paul taught are actually hard to ground in the somewhat more diffuse, frenetic language that he uses, and, in, and that... It might help them to realize also that uh, many of the things that appear as finished sentences with a clear meaning in other translations in the Greek are more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I also like to think, though, it it might might give them a sense of Paul's personality. I found him an incredibly attractive character when I started translating him. Funny, so I've been reading the New Testament in Greek for years, and I was, and I found Paul annoying at first, because, you know, the Greek isn't good, and I, I said, what, what are you trying to say? You know, I don't care. become indignant at times, like, why can't he just state this clearly? And then I realized I, I was missing something much more interesting, which is that the personality of Paul is somebody who's just absolutely consumed with the urgency of his message. Um, now... We know that, that he, like, like his contemporaries, when he wrote, had to dictate to an amanuensis. And the persons who took this, these dictations differed, no doubt, in practice and sensibility. Some of them would polish the work a bit more. Some of them, though, I think were like dictaphones. They just recorded it, you know, almost the way, like Secretary taking shorthand. They were that, they were that uh, um, exact. And in, 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 in Romans, I hear the voice of a man speaking quickly, urgently, trying to communicate something that he knows to be of the, the, the most important uh, kind. It's a, someone absolutely, uh, it's genuinely vexed uh, with those who, who don't get the point, but, but more anxious. Uh, for in Romans 9 to 11 is long meditation on whether or not God is faithful to his covenant uh, with Israel, uh, I, I, in translating it, I, I came away from a feeling that I really was hearing the voice of man for whom this was a deep, deep concern. It actually affected him at, at, at the deepest of levels. And he's just honestly communicating it in an almost confessional voice, even as he's working out his theological response, which, uh, as you know, from my footnotes is, uh, in my mind, very different from the, the theology that's often attributed to those chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I, 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 all I know is that, uh, for from, from me, uh, hearing the different voices as different voices, hearing even the ambiguities as ambiguities, uh, in a sense, made it more vivid, more real, and more convincing to me.
1: I want to talk about another feature of Romans, and, and really, I mean, other places in this translation of the New Testament as well.
0: One can um, never be from Romans. What now? One, one never gets away from Romans. <laughs> one wants to talk about Romans. Okay, yeah.
1: But one thing that was genuinely notable is that this translation does not shy away from the repeated use of universals when it comes to God's saving the world. And so. I know that you know ever since I first read the beauty of the infinite. I thought of you as someone who is not afraid of the New Testament's universalist passages and the patristic writers who follow that lead. So, mm. speak a word here. I'll, I'll just kind of open this up for you. Talk a bit to those people who get nervous about the places in the New Testament that start to sound like everyone gets
0: saved. Well, uh, why shouldn't they be taken literally? I, I don't understand. Um, given that. Uh, we we recognize metaphors for metaphors everywhere else in the text why why then would the metaphors say that Jesus uses about final judgment uh, seem to us uh, to be exact descriptions such as the, so that uh, and after all when Christ speaks of the judgment to come let's remember that the the, the metaphors he uses uh, are all over the place some are you know would seem to be simply metaphors of destruction uh most of them in fact some though for of exclusion but others say uh, persons sent to the torturer until uh the full uh price for their uh their transgression or their debt has been exacted uh seem like quest- you know, seem seem like descriptions of a temporary if terrifying uh penalty to be paid so I mean th- 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 there, there are no uh, dogmatic statements uh, in the New Testament about the uh, uh, about the punishment of the wicked in the world to come that, that obliges to believe in the, the sort of sordid picture of eternal damnation and everlasting torment that, that has haunted Christian imagination down the centuries on the other hand the number of statements uh, that sound genuinely universalist uh, are remarkably numerous and the more and when you're translating it, you can't miss the fact. Um, and, and, the, and at the, some point one has to realize that, that those who deny this historically, you know whether it's Augustine or Calvin or Luther or Thomas Aquinas, uh, have to interpret away what looks like the clear literal meaning of the Universalist passages. While at the same time overburdening and assuming more from the other passages, which are actually quite quite few, that they that they take as indicating eternal damnation uh, or at least damnation of eternal torment, uh, Romans five eighteen, for instance, just to take an, a, a perfectly lucid example, you know, every everyone. Uh, I don't know. I think I should actually probably look up to make sure I, I quote my own translation, somewhat <laughs> rather than someone else's, because because uh, I don't want to get uh, I don't want to make uh, sound like I'm contradicting myself. But uh, uh, do you want me to read it? I've got it. open I here. I, I, think I have it here. Now. Okay, go ahead. Just as by one transgression unto condemnation. Okay, what's interesting about this is the is that the syntax is broken, so it's. Uh, you know, it, it, it is admittedly difficult to follow Paul, but basically one transgression leads to condemnation for all human beings, for all, condemnation for all, so also one act of righteousness leads to, well, rectification, justification, repair, it depends on how you translate that. Um, formulations like that are fairly legion in the New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles. So... Uh, You know, it's always struck, you know, my favorite of the fathers, or at least the one who informed me most, uh, was Gregory of Nyssa, Mm -hmm. a confirmed universalist, and in fact, in some ways, more so than Origen, because unlike Origen, he clearly uh, and and, uh, unambiguously even uh, says that the devil can be saved, will be saved, whereas Origen was reputed to say that, but is also reputed to have denied it. So, um, but what, what, what's striking to me is when you read uh, Gregory of Nyssa's exegesis of the New Testament, uh, which he or, or his sisters Macrina, in which he reports, it's his and her, in his treatise on the soul and, and the resurrection, he makes sense, perfect sense, of all the verses he discusses, uh, both those regarding hell and those regarding heaven, or. Or redemption, uh, and uh, you know Augustine isn't able to do that. Augustine actually has to take a verse like Romans 5:18 and say, well, in the first half of that verse, Paul uses the term all to mean everyone. In the second half, he uses it to mean only those who are elect. Well. That's nonsense. I mean, you know, Paul is Paul. Paul is, isn't a, isn't a master of Greek, but he's not an idiot either. <laughs> you know, he would He wouldn't. He wouldn't he, the formulation is clearly meant to be a parallelism. In fact, Paul writes in parallels throughout. And so, anyway, again, I'm rambling a bit. Uh, my feeling is that uh, a, an unprejudiced reading of the New Testament. Uh, will lead you to conclude that that the promises of universal redemption outnumber and are clearer than uh, any perceived threats of eternal doom.
1: Very good, very good. Well, sticking with Paul, uh, this translation takes on the squirrely allegories of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians. And when it does, you note in a translation note that Paul is, quote, rarely literalist, end quote, as he deals with scriptural texts. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, what kinds of theological, uh, problems, or what are some of the big ones? We shouldn't do a whole catalog. What are some of the big theological problems that we run into when we take Paul as more literal than he tends to be?
0: Well, just the same problems, uh, we run into when we take, when when we attempt to read the Bible in a strictly literalist sense, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Paul, the guy, you know, um, First of all, one has to be clear about what what one means by literal, anyway. Uh, The the ancient Christian practice of reading Scripture for its spiritual sense uh, involved also literal exegesis, but it it wasn't literal in the sense that we mean. Today, when we we speak of literalism, we mean that that we take the text to be reporting historical events as they actually occurred, Whereas the literal level of reading in the ancient world, uh, for Christians, Jews, and pagans, simply meant uh, making sure you understood what the words on the page were saying before you then tried to discover what spiritual truths could be extracted from them. Which by is pre- a
1: render, rendering of literal in the first place.
0: It is, right. And especially ad literum, uh, mm-hmm. literally paying attention to the what the letter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um I, I, I don't know. You see, you understand, I come, be, being orthodox and having been raised uh, nosebleed high Anglican, I come from traditions where the where the allegorical, the patristic method was always assumed. So I've never really been part of a community uh, that uh, with a fundamentalist contingency uh, that believes that you're obliged to believe in six days of creation and that somehow the creation account of First of of the first chapter of Genesis and the the account from the second chapter are the same account, even where they seem to contradict. So, I don't know how that would affect the way one reads Paul.
1: Well, and for many of my students, that is a genuinely uh, revolutionary uh, teaching.
0: Yeah, but but isn't it funny though that it wasn't for the church fathers? Exactly. It wasn't even for medieval Christians. It's a thoroughly modern prejudice that what a text is is a catalog of of either statements of principle or statements of fact. Uh, Whereas, of course, the the notion of an inspired text in the ancient world was that both the writing of the text and the reading of the text were inspired acts of of theoria, that is, contemplation. So that God can reveal himself in the text, uh, and will do it in multiple ways. And the same reader uh, or different readers reading the same passage can have equally valid interpretations, even though those interpretations aren't the same, uh, because it's how the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind of the church and then those who are in the church that was of concern to to, to patristic exegetes. But I think Origen's image of the Bible as a liar played by the Holy Spirit uh, is, is
1: a. L Y R A. Since we're yes. spelling words
0: today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And and uh, you know uh, the, the the model of Christian allegory is right there in Paul. Again and again, he, he's quite willing to say that uh, this is an allegory. This is a figure. You know, from it we learn this, and he takes a spiritual meaning. And uh, it, it for him, you know, the question doesn't arise. Uh, uh, whether the truth of the spiritual meaning is contingent upon this narrative being a factual account of something that happened at a specific date, um, you know, and and uh, this is not uncommon. I mean, Jewish exegetes of the first century, Hellenistic world or of the Babylonian Jewish world, or the Persian Jewish world, uh, were all you know simply not. Fundamentalists—they didn't—they weren't literalists in the modern sense. No one, no one was until the modern period. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we don't have a great deal of time to spend on the Catholic epistles. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I,
0: I, I'm taking so long to answer all your questions that I'm, I'm, I'm uh, exhausting the hour. No, that's all right. That's all right. Yeah, can, is... can I give you a few renditions of uh, my, my favorite Bob Dylan songs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. Someday I will hear that, but right now I do want to talk about
0: how... no, you, no, no, actually you won't.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the harrowing of hell. Okay. In this translation, uh, and in the translation notes in particular on First Peter, uh, you call the harrowing an a- ancient Christian doctrine that's genuinely rooted in Jesus' visitation to the dead. And I'll admit, this caught me off guard because I assumed if there was any bit of Dante... That you would say this isn't really happening in First Peter, this would be it. So spend a bit oh. of time on what subsequent Christian theological and literary traditions get right and what they get wrong about that visitation.
0: Well, now w- w- what were my words exactly? Because I, I, uh, I, I, I I'm not exactly uh, recognizing my sentiments in your description of my footnotes there. Okay, uh, that's
1: fair enough. Let me let me go there, through that passage.
0: There are two there are two passages in First Peter that are often taken
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, as meaning, uh, as, as referring to Christ's sorrowing of hell. One of them isn't, uh, you know, correctly understood that way. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. it's, it's actually a statement about. It seems to be a statement about the risen Christ, not Christ during the triduum, during the three days, but the risen Christ going to those spirits in, in Tartarus. That is the fallen angels, All right? Um, being able to visit them. And that seems to be based on an episode also from first Enoch, which again is unknown to most Christians outside of Ethiopia. Uh, you know, it's in, actually in the Ethiopian canon of the Bible, but mm-hmm. it's not ours. But uh, that's not the only one, of course. Uh, there is also uh, mention of Christ uh, speaking to the dead, you know,
1: but right. the, the, that's the one that I had in mind.
0: Okay well that's chapter 4 yes. okay yeah and uh yeah no i mean there uh uh it is definitely the case that what the the text says all right is that christ evangelized that is gave the good news to those who, to to the dead uh and there's no question i mean if you know it's 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 it's, it's not even really uh, open to doubt what the meaning of the text is that he's actually speaking to the detis Uh but if you go to your new international version, which is, to my mind, the Bible in much the same way that West Side story is Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> you go there that has been altered to suggest that what it's actually saying is that during his lifetime, Jesus spoke to persons who since then have died. Oh,
1: because, heavens. of
0: course. Because the translators coming from a certain evangelical background are of the opinion that that it's impossible for the for for the dead to be evangelized uh, the, entirely based on uh, theological principles that have really no particular basis in the text, but it is clear that what the Greek is saying is that Christ preached good tidings to the to to the dead. That's all. That's all. The, that's the only point I was making was that this idea of the harrowing of hell is obviously already or this at least evangelization of the dead. You see, what do we mean? Christ going to the shadows, to the shades, to Hades? Um, remember, as as I tried to emphasize in the notes and in the critical apparatus and in the translation, the fundamental soteriological theme that all the New Testament writers share is cosmic conquest, uh, not, uh, you know, an, an, uh, not vicarious atonement. Uh, that's uh, you know, the verses read that way are generally misread. Uh, even the, the the language of ransom in in the New Testament refers specifically to a manum- mission fee for. For setting free slaves, the the entire soteriological narrative of I was I say entire the the most consistent soteriological narrative in the New Testament is of Christ in, God in Christ penetrating every realm of alienation from God, freeing us from our slavery our slavery to death, uh, and reordering all the spiritual and terrestrial and, and even subterranean orders under the rule of God, so that everything is rescued, restored, transfigured, glorified. Uh, already, in 1 in Peter, obviously, that includes an understanding for some—we don't know how many—that some that the act of rescue, of divine rescue, uh, on the cross is an actual descent into the realm of absolute alienation from God, uh, the household of death, in which all souls were imprisoned, uh, so that that too can be overthrown, and so that the slaves can be set free. Uh, Again, so many of our traditions have invented so many ingenious and preposterous understandings of the soteriological language of the New Testament that we we can often miss that that, that it's a very simple narrative, for the most part, as actually written in the text. It's a story of rescue. Uh, The cosmos has fallen, not just humanity, but the whole whole, uh, order of creation is in bondage to death, and Christ is god Descending into the midst of our alienation to set everyone and everything free—it's it's rescue, it's conquest, it's adventure. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, it, it, whatever the case, though, the author of First Peter means what he says. I mean, it's it's clearly that the, the uh, clearly the case that whoever wrote the book is saying that Jesus preached the gospel to souls, uh, to the souls of those who had died.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, listeners, I want to say that the scientific postscript to this volume uh, really digs into some central Greek terms, uh, you know, provides, you know, some very interesting explorations of them. David, I want you to talk about one of them in particular right now, and that is the word Ionius or ionius, as I was taught to say it. Uh, now, which gets,
0: which now gets, how, long, how long is the note on that? in the postscript. I'm gonna guess maybe about a dozen pages. About that, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, what were you gonna say?
1: (laughs) Well, that's all right. Uh, You know, a lot of English translations are gonna render that as eternal, uh, which is a very Boethian way to translate the word. You prefer of the age. What's at stake in that change?
0: Well, uh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly exotic in this regard, many New Testament scholars and theologians over the centuries have been aware that, well, first of all, there are times when the word is used uh, in the New Testament in context in which it can't mean eternal in the sense we would think of eternal. That is just endless duration. Uh, but we also, this is all the words eon and uh, uh, the, the noun eon and, and the uh, adjective eonos have always had a somewhat complicated and difficult history in Greek, and uh, we know that uh, for centuries, uh, especially in the eastern uh, reaches of Christendom, the specific, the exact meaning of of that term was somewhat more fluid than the word eternal is for us. Uh, It's generally believed, and and, uh, Again, not 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 by wild uh, revisionist left-wing scholars, but scholars from every quarter of 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 the theological and hermeneutic Christian hermeneutical world, that in the Gospels this is often uh, a way of indicating Christ speaking of the age to come, the the Olam Habah, uh, which is an eternal reality, but it, 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 it perhaps. But the word itself does not necessarily mean eternal. And in fact, if you look at the history of the word in Greek, it it does not actually have the unambiguous sense that, say, the word aedios would, or ateleftos, meaning uh, endless or eternal. Aeonius in the history of, well, aeonius, the adjective we we don't find before Plato, but an aeon. Uh, in Greek can mean any number of things. It can mean a lifetime. It can mean an epoch. It can mean uh, an eternal divine realm, but eternal in the sense of not bearing the marks of time, Mm -hmm. that is not Mm -hmm. having generation and decay. And therefore, I think in the Gospel of John, for instance, the age is is the the image of the age, capital A, and that's the best I can do with it, is of a reality, is of God's reality above the cosmos, or beyond the cosmos, when Christ speaks of coming from above, I think, you know, that's the reality of the eon to which he's referring. Uh, But also in the synoptics, there's good reason to to read the word as referring to specifically the age of God that is coming, Um, the, the new age in which the former things will have passed away. And certainly in Paul, one often uh, gets the feeling that this is this is well, not gets the feeling. It's clear that for Paul the the, the new age is rapidly approaching. And for him, uh, the difference between this age and the age to come is the the burning and urgent message of the gospel in some sense. Uh, this age is passing away you know, and there is an age that is now that will be an eternal reality, but again, that doesn't mean that the word itself has an intrinsic meaning, eternal. Now, I say this even though in later centuries, that's more or less what it came to mean in Greek as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in modern Greek, uh, you, 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 uh, or I shouldn't say in modern Greek, but if you're a, a uh, modern Greek Orthodox Christian who goes to church regularly and hears the word aeonios used many, many times in the liturgy, you're probably just going to think eternal in a vague sense uh, because we're not first century Jews awaiting a cosmic restoration. Uh, so, uh, but again, I can't. Has, I, I, the reason I devoted 12 pages to explaining the word is. Uh, I found it almost impossible to go through all my different concerns when, when, uh, when asked to do so on the spur of the moment uh, in my previous conversations. All I can say is that uh, my experience to this point has been that those who are fiercely committed to the word being taken as meaning eternal uh, and therefore uh, endlessly— Uh, continuous uh, are committed to that precisely to save the reference to an eternal punishment (laughs) in Matthew and to me that seems a a fairly squalid reason to worry about it Uh, So, I think that, that properly speaking the word is too mysterious, too strange too difficult to render into an English equivalent to be honest, I think it indicated a whole atmosphere of associations that for us aren't associated, okay. Okay. like many, many words that we use. And, and, but in the, in the context of the, of the preaching of Christ and of much of the New Testament, I think it is a way of indicating the difference between the reality that is coming from God and the reality we now inhabit. It's not a statement about duration or time. All right. Well,
1: David, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the, hospita- in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about the New Testament, the practice of translation, or anything else would you have our listeners thinking about as we head towards the door?
0: <sighs> you see, it's a very large question for a last word. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, first of all, I mean, I'm not going to claim that my translation surpasses all others in in accuracy, uh, even if I believe that. I'm not going to claim it, uh, and, and I do believe it. Uh, well, not really. Uh, how can I put this? I think what I, I learned from translating it is that it, if you have Greek. Uh, it's not a bad discipline, theological discipline, to go through verse by verse and think how this might be translated. But if you don't have Greek, uh, it's not a bad discipline to try to find out as many, as well as you can, the various ways in which the text might be rendered, because it's the world of the first century is far stranger. Uh, than we realize. We've become accustomed to thinking about it in the ways our traditions tell us to think about it. And the truth is, is the text doesn't confirm any of our theological prejudices or perspectives, absolutely. So if we're really committed to faith in Christ, we, we should be willing to allow ourselves again and again to have our certitudes disrupted by everything that's strange in the text. And for myself, in translating it, that's precisely what happened to me. Again and again, I realized I hadn't thought through the meaning of various things that I had assumed I understood, even though I'd been reading it in Greek, I hadn't been translating. i hadn't I hadn't been approaching the text as a problem to be solved. And so I know that for myself, it was it was an extraordinarily important, necessary, sometimes uh, and sometimes troubling experience, but I think, very much for the best.
1: David Bentley Hart, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles.
0: Well, thanks for having me. Sorry the voice is failing. It's the middle of winter, you know.
1: Oh, I understand.
0: <laughs> we seem to do these podcasts in the middle of winter when everybody's <laughs> pass, passing their pestilences around. So. Yes, indeed. Anyway,
1: thank I, I thank you listeners for downloading. Uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.